Thank you for listening to our Emmanuel Baptist Church podcast sermon series by Pastor Sean Cole. Emmanuel exists to display God's glory, declare God's gospel, and to disciple for God's great commission. If you have any questions about this message or would like more information about our church, you can visit our website at www.ebc-online.org. Now here's Pastor Sean. Open your Bibles to 2 Samuel chapter 7. 2 Samuel chapter 7 is where we're going to camp out this morning. I'll give you a few moments to turn there or swipe there or open there. I don't care how you get to your Bible as long as you get to it. Some of us are purists and still use paper and leather. That's all right. Have you ever heard of the term pay it forward? Pay it forward. Anybody ever heard that term? Some of you have. It's this whole idea that if somebody does a good deed for you, a random act of kindness, what you do, instead of paying them back, you do a random act of kindness for somebody else down the road. And so it's kind of your way of paying back the person that did a good deed for you, and so you pay it forward, this kind of way of doing random acts of kindness. Back in 2008, there was a movement that began on Facebook. It ended up having over a million followers in 39 countries. It was called the Karma Experiment. The Karma Experiment. Here's their own words about what it's about. They say it's an international kindness community that exists to serve and support the thousands of local organizations and millions of kindness advocates throughout the world. Here's what the karma experiment tries to do. They believe that if people all over the world do random acts of kindness for one another, the world will be a better place. There'll be no more war, there'll be peace, there'll be harmony. All of the social ills that plague our culture will be fixed if people just did these random acts of kindness, if they just pay it forward, if you will. And and the more people seize opportunities to be kind, the world will be a better place. Now this sounds very noble, doesn't it? Sounds very reasonable. Who doesn't want to be kind? Who doesn't want to be nice? Who doesn't want the world to be a better place? Who doesn't want to give to others? But here's a huge question for me when I looked at the name of this experiment. Why is it called the karma experiment? Is there a catch? Why are they doing it under the auspices of karma? Now you have to ask a question, what is karma? What is karma? It's cosmic cause and effect. Here's what karma says. Karma says, if I do a bunch of good things in my life, hopefully I will stack up enough good things so that good things will happen back to me. If I do a bunch of bad things in my life, then I'm stacking up bad things and then bad karma is going to come back to me and bad things are going to happen to me. So the whole goal of my life is to do enough good, to stack up enough karma so that good karma comes back to me as opposed to bad karma. And so really when you look at the karma experiment, is it really that selfless? No. Because what's their entire goal? Their entire goal is to do enough random acts of kindness so that they can have good karma thousands if not millions of people around the world fundamentally operate on this worldview this worldview of karma and you're not immune to this maybe you're here today and that's how you believe life works i do a bunch of good 
good things will happen to me. If I do a bunch of bad, I better, be, I better worry because bad things will happen to me. And that translates into how we, sometimes we understand our relationship with God. Sometimes we think of God's relationship with us and our relationship with God as more of a pay-it-forward karma experiment. We pay it forward. You see, one of the greatest lies that we are tempted to believe is that I must somehow do something for God in order for God to be happy with me or to bless me. In other words, we think God needs something from us. God must need my good works. God must need me in some way. I must do something to fulfill a need in God so that I can stack up good karma so that good things will happen back to me. Now, here's why this worldview is fundamentally wrong on many levels. Number one, God has no needs. And number two, it totally misunderstands your need. What is the greatest need that you and I have? Is it to pay it forward and have some type of karma experiment where we can get into God's good graces by how much good work we do? Is that our greatest need? No. Our greatest need, every single one of us in this room, is the gospel of grace. The gospel of grace. And it's amazing to me how the beauty of the gospel of grace shines on the pages of the Old Testament. Hundreds of years before Jesus Christ was even born, we see the gospel of grace. And so this morning, we're going to explore one of the most famous and foundational passages in the life of David. 2 Samuel chapter 7 has traditionally been called the Davidic covenant. The Davidic covenant. And there's been a lot of writings, a lot of opinions, a lot of scholarship. There's tons and tons of books out there on the Davidic covenant. And I'm not going to get into all of that this morning. I just want to ask a simple question as we look at this text this morning. Here's the question. How do we see the gospel of grace in 2 Samuel 7? How do we see the gospel of grace in 2 Samuel 7? The Reformation recaptured the gospel during the Protestant Reformation. All those years of being under the Middle Ages where the gospel was lost, when the Protestant reformers kind of came up with their creeds and confessions, there were three big categories that really solidified or explained the gospel. So that's what we're going to look at this morning are these three big categories, and they show up in the text. The three big things that we're going to look at this morning are guilt, grace, and gratitude. So let's first of all see guilt. If we could have that up on the screen, please. Guilt. Guilt is the first thing we're going to look at. So let's look at 2 Samuel chapter 7, verses 1 through 3. 2 Samuel chapter 7. So let's look at verses 1 through 3, and we're going to see guilt. And you may wonder, where are we going to see guilt in this? Well, let's read and figure this out. Now, when the king lived in his house... And the Lord had given him rest from all his surrounding enemies. The king said to Nathan the prophet, See now, I dwell in a house of cedar, but the ark of God dwells in a tent. And Nathan said to the king, Go do all that's in your heart, for the Lord is with you. Here's gospel truth number one. Gospel truth number one. As guilty sinners, the only thing we can offer God is our helplessness and our hopelessness. Now let's look at David here for a moment in these first few verses. David had noble intentions, did he not? What's David's thought process? 
They had captured the Ark of the Covenant, as we saw last week. They'd brought it back to Jerusalem. David's living in this luxurious palace. He's living in this nice house. And he thinks to himself, I'm living in a nice house, but God doesn't have a house. So let me, as a human, build a house for God. In David's mind, God needed a home, and David, as a human, could somehow fill what was lacking in God. But notice how God is the source of all of David's blessings. Notice what it says there in verse 1. Now, when the king lived in his house and the Lord had given him rest from all his surrounding enemies, God had given him rest, God had prospered him, God had made David the king. And so here's the greatest need that David needs to understand. God does not need anything. I, as a human being, are the one that needs something. Our greatest need is to understand that God has no needs. David's thinking to himself, God must have a need. He needs a house. I, as a human, can fill that need. Listen to what Acts chapter 17, verses 24 through 25 say. The God who made the world and everything in it, being Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in temples made by man, nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything, since he himself gives to all mankind life and breath and everything. God needs nothing. Romans 11, 34-36. Who has known the mind of the Lord? Who has been his counselor? Who has given a gift to him that he might be repaid? For from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be glory forever. Amen. God has no needs. We are the ones who have needs. We are needy. We are desperate. We are helpless. We are hopeless. We are hellbound. We are guilty before the living God. And there's no way we can offer anything to God. We can't earn his love. We can't do anything to obligate God to love us. We can't somehow make God indebted to us. There's nothing that we can do to fill a need in God. We can't pay it forward. We can't obey the Ten Commandments. We can't try all all these things to somehow be good enough to earn God's favor. He has no needs. We have needs. We are guilty. Ephesians 2, 1 through 3 tells us how guilty we are. And you, we're dead. In the trespasses and sins in which you once walked. That's really tiny. Can you guys see that? Which once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, and the spirit that is now at works in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and we were by nature children of wrath, like the rest of mankind. You see, our first thing that we need to understand is that we are guilty before the living God. God has no needs. We can't build him a house. We can't do anything to make God indebted to us. We can't do anything to make God love us. He has no needs. We are the ones who have the needs. We need grace. We need salvation. And so that leads to the second thing that we see in this passage of Scripture, and that is grace. Grace. So let's see how God intervenes and showers David with grace. What's David's noble intention? I'm going to build a house for God. And Nathan says, go do this all that's in your heart. And let's find out how God interrupts that plan. Let's pick up in verse 4. But that same night, the word of the Lord came to Nathan. Go and tell my servant David, thus says the Lord, would you build me a house to dwell in? I've not lived in a house since the day I brought up the people of Israel from Egypt to this day. 
but I've been moving about in a tent for my dwelling. In all places where I have moved with all the people of Israel, did I speak a word with any of the judges of Israel, whom I commanded to shepherd my people, saying, Why have you not built me a house of cedar? Now therefore, thus you shall say to my servant David, Thus says the Lord of hosts, I took you from the pasture, from following the sheep, that you should be prince over the people of Israel. And I have been with you wherever you went and have cut off all your enemies before you. And I will make for you a great name, like the name of the great ones of the earth. And I will appoint a place for my people Israel and will plant them so that they may dwell in their own place to be disturbed no more. And violent men shall afflict them no more as formerly from the time that I appointed judges over my people Israel. And I will give you rest from all your enemies. Moreover, the Lord declares to you that the Lord will make you a house. When your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your offspring after you who shall come from your body, and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for me, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I will be to him a father, and he shall be to me a son. When he commits iniquity, I will discipline him with the rod of men, with the stripes of the sons of men. But my steadfast love will not depart from him as I took it from Saul, whom I put away from before you. And your house and your kingdom shall be made sure forever before me. Your throne shall be established forever. In accordance with all these words and in accordance with his vision, Nathan spoke to David. God interrupts David's plan, and God intervenes in sovereign grace to shower David with grace beyond his wildest imagination, beyond his wildest dreams. There's a lot going on here in this Davidic covenant. A lot of books have been written about it, and so to make it easy, I want to just distill it down to three major promises. God gives David three major promises, but before we do that, I want you to notice something about this. I stressed it. How many times did I say, I, I? Who's speaking here? God. David is a passive recipient. God is the sovereign initiator. Who's initiating everything in this passage of Scripture? It's God. God is promising to do it. God is making the promise. God is blessing David. God's not asking David to do anything. God's not asking David to earn anything. God's not asking David to to really do anything but just to sit and listen to how he's going to bless him. So David is a passive recipient. God is the sovereign initiator. And first of all, God says, I'm going to bless you with a great name. Look at verse 9. I have been with you wherever you went and have cut off all your enemies from before you. I will make for you a great name like the name of the great ones of the earth. Do we know who David is today? Yes. He's got a great name, just like Abraham had a great name. God gave that promise to him. Second blessing, God says, I'm going to give Israel a home. I'm going to give you rest from your enemies. I'm going to give you a home. You see that in verse 10. I will appoint a place for my people Israel. I will plant them so that they may dwell in their own place and be disturbed no more. No longer would Israel be wandering in the wilderness. No longer would they be um, having to have you know, fights with the Philistines and having all these things happen. Now they would be in the permanent capital in Jerusalem at peace. But here's a third blessing. It's the big blessing. God is going to build David a house. God says, David, do you want to build me a house? No, let's turn this around. I'm going to build you a house. And not just a literal house. I'm going to build you a dynasty. I'm going to build you a kingdom. I'm going to build you an eternal throne. Look at verse 11. From the time I appointed judges over my people Israel, and I will give you rest from all your enemies. Moreover, the Lord declares to you that the Lord will make you a house. 
You don't make me a house, David, because I have no needs. I'm going to bless you beyond your wildest imaginations, and I'm going to make for you a house. And I'm not just going to make for you just a house, a, 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 a palace to live in. I'm going to make you an eternal throne. You're going to have a dynasty. You're going to have kings come from you. As a matter of fact, the ultimate king is going to come from you, David, Jesus. Now, ultimately, some of these promises were immediately realized in Solomon, his immediate son. Solomon actually constructed the temple, the house for the Lord, God gave him the privilege of being able to do that in 1 Kings 6. But ultimately, this Davidic covenant finds its fulfillment in Jesus. In Jesus. Jesus claimed that he was the temple. In John 2, 19-21, Jesus answered them, Destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up. The Jews then said, It's taken 46 years to build this temple, and, I, and you'll raise it up in three days? but he was speaking about the temple of his body. Jesus would be the ultimate temple of God. Jesus would be the dwelling place of God. Jesus claimed that he possessed an eternal throne. Matthew 19, 28. Jesus said to them, Truly I say to you, in the new world, when the Son of Man will sit on his glorious throne, you who have followed me will also sit on twelve thrones, judging the twelve tribes of Israel. Jesus is going to sit on a throne one day. In the new heavens and the new earth or the millennium, depending on what your view is there. Jesus claimed he would establish an everlasting kingdom. John 18, 36. Jesus answered, my kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, my servants would have been fighting that I might not be delivered over to the Jews, but my kingdom is not from this world. Jesus is going to have a throne. Jesus is going to have a kingdom. Jesus is going to be the eternal king coming from David. The apostles saw this in the early church. When Peter gets up to preach at Pentecost, what does he say about David? In Acts 2, 29 and following. Brothers, I might say this with you, brothers, I may say to you with confidence about the patriarch David, that he both died and was buried, and his tomb is with us to this day. But being therefore a prophet, and knowing that God has sworn with an oath to him that he would set one of his descendants on his throne, he foresaw and spoke about the resurrection of the Christ, that he was not abandoned to Hades, nor did his flesh see corruption. This Jesus God raised up, and we are all witnesses. These are promises that God gives to David. Beyond his wildest imaginations. David says, God, I want to build for you a house. God says, no, don't build me a house. I don't need a house. I don't need anything. I'm going to build you a house. I'm going to make you a great name. I'm going to make you a great nation. I'm going to make you this great king. And ultimately, David, from you, Jesus is going to come as the king of kings and lord of lords. And so think about what God has done for you in the gospel. Has not God in the gospel graced you beyond your wildest dreams? Think about Ephesians 2, 4 through 9. One of my favorite passages of Scripture, but God. I love the but gods in Scripture. He's talking about sin in the few verses before that, and then he transitions and says, but God. Look at these words. Look, this is, this is, if you're a Christian today, this is true for you. But God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he's loved us. Even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ, by grace you've been saved 
and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you've been saved through faith and this is not your own doing. It's the gift of God, not a result of works so that no one may boast. If you're a Christian here today, that's true for you. Just like David was a passive recipient and God did not ask him to do anything, it's the same thing in your salvation. God does not ask you to do anything. God doesn't say to you, clean up your act, get your act together, follow these steps, and then once you meet the criteria, then I I might think about saving you. What does God do? He says, be a passive recipient. I'm the sovereign initiator. I'm going to shower you with grace simply because I have the right to do so. Receive it and enjoy how I'm blessing you. Guilt. We are guilty before the living God. Grace. God showers us with grace beyond our wildest dreams. But here's the third thing we see in this passage of Scripture. Gratitude. Guilt grace and gratitude how does david respond to this grace well let's see how he responds let's pick up in verse 18 then king david went in and sat before the lord and said who am i O lord god what is my house that you've brought me thus far and yet this was a small thing in your eyes O lord god you've spoken also of your servant's house for a great while to come And this is instruction for mankind, O Lord God. And what more can David say to you? For you know your servant, O Lord God. Because of your promise and according to your own heart, you've brought about all this greatness to make your servant know it. Therefore you are great, O Lord God. For there is none like you, and there is no God beside you according to all that we've heard with our ears. And who is like your people Israel? The one nation on earth whom God went to redeem to be with his people, making himself a name and doing for them great and awesome things by driving out before your people whom you redeemed for yourself from Egypt, a nation and its gods. And you established for yourself your people Israel to be your people forever. And you, O Lord, became their God. And now, O Lord God, confirm forever the word that you have spoken concerning your servant and concerning his house and do as you have spoken. And you will be magnified forever, saying the Lord of hosts is God over Israel. And the house of your servant David will be established before you. For you, O Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, have made this revelation to your servant, saying, I will build you a house. Therefore, your servant has found courage to pray this prayer to you. And now, O Lord God, you are God, and your words are true. You've promised this good thing to your servant. Now, therefore, may it please you to bless the house of your servant, so that it may continue forever before you. For you, O Lord God, have spoken, and with your blessing shall the house of your servant be blessed forever. Here's gospel truth number three. God's sovereign grace should lead to a life of gratitude and worship. That's what grace leads to, gratitude. Notice what it says there in verse 18. King David went in and sat before the Lord. Most scholars believe he probably went in and sat right next to the Ark of the Covenant so he could be the closest to the presence of the Lord. Think about the magnitude of what's happening. David is overwhelmed by grace that the first thing he has to do, he has to go sit down and take a breath. I'm overwhelmed 
by grace. I'm just going to sit here and think about it. I'm going to sit here and ponder it. I'm going to sit here and let it sink in how much God has graced me. And then he prays and he responds with gratitude. What does verse 18 say? Who am I? Who am I, God? God, you didn't have to do this. God, thanks for stooping down from heaven and building me a house. This is beyond my wildest imaginations. I wanted to build a house for you, and yet you turned the tables and said, David, I'm not only going to build you a house, but I'm going to give you an everlasting dynasty. David is overwhelmed by grace. And so what does he do? Does he walk out of there and say, thanks, God, see you later? No, he responds with gratitude. He begins to pray. He begins to pour his his heart out to God and he begins to rehearse or he begins to share or he begins to declare all the gracious things that God has done to him. And so what he does is he begins to list off all the ways that God's been gracious to him. And that's what gratitude leads to. We begin to list off. We begin to worship. We begin to tell God back to him all the gracious things that he's done to him. And so in this prayer of response, in this prayer of gratitude, we see seven attributes of God. Seven attributes are reasons to be grateful for God's grace. So David's just going to start listing them off. He's erupting. He's overwhelmed. And maybe this morning you need to stop and just sit down, if you're not already sitting yet, and think about grace. Has it truly hit you that you are a recipient of God's sovereign grace in your life? And is it leading to worship? Is it leading to gratitude? What does David do? What are some things, what are these seven things that David gives reasons for for being grateful for God's grace? Well, first of all, he says, God, God has an overflowing heart. God has an overflowing heart. Look at verse 21. What does he say in verse 21? Because of your promise and according to your own heart, you've brought about all this greatness to make your servant know it. According to your own heart, heart God has a heart to bless David God is not obligated to bless David God doesn't have to bless David out of God's heart he chooses to bless David we must never forget this one fact God owes us nothing but hell and for him to choose to show us grace shows the depths of his heart for sinners like you and me. Exodus 34, 6. The Lord passed before him, that's Moses, and proclaimed the Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger, and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. Steadfast love. Those of you that have been around here a long time, what's the Hebrew word? Chesed. Can you say it like that? Chesed. It's that tenacious loyal, powerful, covenant love that God has for his children that he will never let us go. It's the steadfast love of the Lord. It's, it's the overflowing love of the Lord. Remember what Jesus did when he saw the crowds in, Mark, in Matthew 9, 36. When he saw the crowds, as Jesus, he had compassion for them because they were harassed and helpless like a sheep without a shepherd. Let's just stop like David did for a moment. And let's think about God's overflowing heart of love for us. You and I should never get over the fact that God loves us. We can throw it around as a trite statement, God is love, and and we can kind of get so familiar with it, but we need to stop and remember that God loves us out of the overflow of his heart, and he's a God 
You've shown us mercy. But not only that, David says, you're a God of love. It's coming from your overflowing heart, but, but you're a God great in power. Number two, God is great in power. Look at verse 22. God is great in power. Verse 22. Therefore you are great, O Lord God. You're great. Psalm 91, 1 through 2. He who dwells in the shelter of the Most High will abide in the shadow of the Almighty. I will say to the Lord, my refuge and my fortress, my God in whom I trust. You're powerful. You're my fortress. You're great in power. Jeremiah 32, 17 through 18. Ah, Lord God, it is you who've made the heavens and the earth by your great power and by your outstretched hand. Nothing is too hard for you. You show steadfast love to thousands, but you repay the guilt of fathers to their children after them. Oh, great and mighty God, whose name is the Lord of hosts. Are you mesmerized by the awesome power of the Lord God? Not only his love, but his power. Third, God is the only one true God. Look at what David says in the second part of verse 22. Therefore you are great, O Lord God, for there is none like you, and there is no God besides you. He's the one true living God. Isaiah 45, 21 through 22. Declare and present your case. Let them take counsel together. Who told this long ago? Who declared it of old? Wasn't that I the Lord? And there is no other God besides me. A righteous God and a Savior, there is none besides me. Turn to me and be saved all the ends of the earth, for I am God and there is no other. What did Jesus say about himself in John 14, 6? I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but through me. There is no other. Acts 4, 11 and 12. This Jesus is the stone that was rejected by the builders, which has become the cornerstone. And there is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. Jesus is the only way. There's no other God. The question I have for you is, you may give lip service to the fact that there's no other God, but do you have idols in your life that you've elevated above God and you're living for those idols as opposed to Jesus? Is he your one true God? Fourth, what does David say? God's our Redeemer. He has a heart of love. He's powerful. He's the one true God, but he's also our Redeemer. Look at verse 23. And who is like your people Israel, the one nation on earth whom God went to redeem, to be his people, making himself a name and doing for them great and awesome things by driving out people, driving out before you people whom you redeemed for yourself from Egypt, a nation and its gods. This is in in reference to the Passover. How did God redeem Israel? He redeemed them through the blood of a sacrificial lamb and his outstretched arm and his power got them through the Red Sea. God is the Redeemer. And so this term redeemed, Redeemer, all throughout the Bible means God saves, God rescues by the blood of the lamb. Psalm 77, 13 through 15. Your way, O God, is holy. What God is great like our God? You are the God who works wonders. You've made known your might among the peoples. You, with your arm, redeemed your people, the children of Jacob and Joseph. How does Peter describe being redeemed? 1 Peter 1, 18-19. Knowing that you were ransomed, redeemed, bought 
from the feudal ways inherited from your forefathers, not with perishable things such as silver or gold. So what were we bought with? The precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. And because God redeems us, because God buys us, he preserves us, he keeps us. Notice verse 24. And you established for yourself your people Israel to be your people forever. And you, O Lord, became their God. God says, I bought you Israel, you're my people forever. What does Jesus say about us when he saves us in John 10, 27? What does Jesus say? My sheep hear my voice and I know them and they follow me. I give them eternal life and they will never perish. And no one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father who has given them to me is greater than all and no one is able to snatch them out of the Father's hand. God has an overflowing heart of love. God is God is great in power. There's only one true God. God's our redeemer. God's our sustainer. But number five, God is true to his word. Look at verse 28. And now, O Lord God, you are God, and your words are true, and you've promised this good thing to your servant. Proverbs chapter 30, verse 5. Every word of God proves true. He is a shield to those who take refuge in him. Every word of God proves true. Isn't that a great promise? Not just some of the words of God, not just half of the words of God, but every word of God proves true. He's trustworthy. He's true to his promises. He's true to his word. Are you trusting in that word this morning? Are you doubting his word? Number six, God showers us with blessings. Look at verse 29. Now, therefore, may it please you to bless the house of your servant so that it may continue forever before you. For you, O Lord God, have spoken, and with your blessing shall the house of your servant be blessed forever. God blessed David with overwhelming grace. How has God blessed us? What does Paul say at the opening, chap- the opening chapter of Ephesians, the first few verses? In Ephesians 1 through 6, what, is, what does Paul say? Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who's blessed us in Christ, with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love, he predestined us for adoption as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace, with which he has blessed us in the beloved. We sang about it earlier. To the praise of his glory, to the praise of his glorious grace, he's blessed us with every spiritual blessing. He's chosen us before the foundation of the world. He's adopted us. He's redeemed us. He's saved us. He's given us the Holy Spirit. He's freed us. We have every spiritual blessing in in Christ. Are you blown away by that? Does it ever stop and occur to you that you don't deserve any of these blessings? And God has chosen to give them to you beyond your wildest imaginations. But number seven, God does all things for his glory of his name alone. Look at verse 23. And who is like your people Israel, the one nation on earth whom God went to redeem to be his people, making himself a name? God is making himself a name. Look at verse 26. And your name will be magnified forever, saying the Lord of hosts is God of Israel, and the house of your servant David will be established before you. God does this all for the sake of his name. Why does God save you? Yeah, he loves you. Why does God do all this? Well, you're a part of it, but ultimately God does all this for the sake of his name, for the glory of his name. Isaiah 48, 11. God says, for my own sake, 
For my own sake I do it, for how should my name be profaned? My glory I will not give to another. And what does Philippians 2, 10 through 11 say? At the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. David begins by thinking he can fill a need in God. I need to build God a house. And ultimately, our need is we don't give God anything. We're the ones who have the need. We're guilty. And then God comes in grace and overwhelms us and showers us with grace, and that should lead to gratitude. Gratitude. So what are these gospel truths? Guilt. We're all guilty. The only thing that we can bring to God, the only thing we bring to the table is our hopelessness, our helplessness. We're guilty. We're, we're helpless. Grace. God overcomes that guilt with grace beyond our wildest dreams. Gratitude. That grace should leave us to a life of gratitude and worship. So how will you respond today? Let's talk about guilt for a moment. Do you today see yourself as guilty before the living God? Needy, helpless. Have you reached that point where you realize you're lost? That you can't save yourself. You can't pay it forward. You can't do enough good deeds. You stand condemned before the living God. Are you guilty if you if you're here today and you realize that you realize the desperate need of your heart is you're guilty that the fix for you is the answer for you is is to confess that guilt to confess that sin and to cry out for forgiveness from jesus christ and at least a second question in relation to grace have you personally experienced this grace not have you heard about it, not has it happened to somebody else. Have you personally experienced the grace of God that comes in salvation? Have you repented of your sins and trusted in Christ and experienced the free gift of salvation where Jesus Christ comes to the power of the Holy Spirit, takes up residence in your heart and changes you from the inside out and gives you a brand new identity and liberates you from sin? Have you experienced God's saving grace? In relation to gratitude, maybe that's where a lot of us are in this room. Yeah, I have admitted I'm guilty. I know I'm a sinner. I'm saved. I've experienced God's grace. But I'm not living a life of gratitude. I'm living a life of pride. I'm living a life of selfishness. I'm living a life of entitlement. I'm living a life as if God owes me something. I kind of serve God out of duty, out of guilt. I do things for God so that he will love me as opposed to I do things for God because he's already loved me. You see the difference there? There's a huge difference between serving God in order for him to love us versus serving God because he's already loved us. A lot of Christians are frustrated and are guilt-ridden and are very nerve-wracked because they're trying to live the life of a Christian to get brownie points with God. If you're a Christian, he's already accepted you in Christ. You now serve him out of joy because of what he's done for you. Gratitude. Do you spend time praising God. Don't ever forget this fact. You and I are way more sinful than we could ever imagine. But God's grace is way more awesome than you and I could ever imagine. God's grace is more powerful than any sin in this room. So there's one king 
that saves. It's not David. It's the son of David, Jesus. Would you come before this king and be honest and admit your guilt? Would you come before this king and accept his grace? And would you come before this king and live a life of gratitude? Guilt, grace, and gratitude. That's the truth of the gospel. And every single one of us here this morning need it. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Let's bow our heads. For others of you, you need to receive God's grace. And for others of you, you need to wrestle with, with gratitude. That you, I, can't, I can't tell you how to respond this morning. Only the Holy Spirit can do that. So what I want to do is give you time this morning in the quietness of this moment just to, to, to pray and to, and to um, think and to truly engage Jesus this morning. So would you spend time doing that and letting the Holy Spirit search your heart this morning? This morning, overwhelmed by grace. May your love and grace and power for us never get to the point where we're we're too comfortable with it that we take it for granted. May we always remember that we are not worthy of that grace. We cannot earn that grace. You're not obligated to give us that grace. But you do because of your great love. Father, you have no needs. We can't do anything to fulfill a need in you, God. You're a God who has no needs. We're the ones who have the needs, Lord. We're guilty. We're wretched. We are way more sinful than we could ever imagine. But Jesus, your grace is way more awesome than we could ever imagine. My prayer this morning is that every single person in this room will walk out of this place having experienced the overwhelming grace of God and salvation. So Lord, if there's anybody in this room that's guilty this morning, may they cry out in repentance and faith to receive salvation. Would they come to the end of their rope and realize they are helpless and hopeless and that the only thing they can do is to cast themselves at your mercy, King Jesus? Would you save sinners this morning? And Lord, for those of us that are already saved, that have experienced that grace, would we live lives of gratitude? Lord, will we not be petty? Will we not be prideful? Will we not be jealous or or, um, spoiled? But Father, will we live lives of joyful gratitude? Will we be like David? Will we just sit down before you and say, God, who am I that you would save me? Let me just rehearse all the things that you've done. Let me just tell back to you all the things that you've done. Let me worship you with my life a life of gratitude. Let me be grateful because you showered me with grace and I deserve none of it. Father, thank you for all the ways that you've blessed us beyond imagination. Help us to count our blessings and to thank you and to praise you. We love you and we honor you, King Jesus. It's in your name that we pray. Amen.